0: Our scripture reading this morning is Luke chapter 13, verses 18 through 35. That reading may be found on the Pew Bible on page 873. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree and the birds of the air made its nest in its branches. And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you have come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves are cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem O Jerusalem Jerusalem the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing behold your house is forsaken And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Father,
1: we've come to submit ourselves to your word. This is the word of Christ. The voice of Christ is heard in the preaching of the word of Christ. So I pray that you would give us faith to receive this word, to hear it, to believe it, to obey it. And all of that is work that's done by your Spirit. And so we ask and we even plead for your Spirit's work among us as the word of Christ goes forward during this time. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In Genesis chapter 6, God tells a man named Noah to build an ark because God was going to, quote, bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, God says to Noah. So for the next several decades and decades Noah built this enormous boat, believing that God was telling the truth about destroying all living creatures in a global flood. Those who lived around Noah in his day didn't believe that judgment was coming. They lived life as they normally did. Jesus says in Luke chapter 17 of those in Noah's day, just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking, and marrying, and being given in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. One day, Noah's ark was finished. And Noah and his wife and their three sons and their three wives and all the animals that God had sent to the ark, they all went inside the ark And Genesis chapter 7 and verse 16 says, and the Lord shut him in. The Lord closed the door to the ark. I wonder, what crossed the mind of those who didn't believe that judgment in the form of a worldwide devastating flood was coming? On the day when, as the Bible puts it, The fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened and the rains fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. As the waters rose ever higher, what thoughts did those who watched Noah build the ark have? Those people who lived as if judgment would never come. When it began to come, how hard did they pound on the door? How loudly did they scream until the rising flood water silenced them in death forever? There's another door in our text today. A door that the door on Noah's Ark is a shadow of. What is it that the door on Noah's Ark pointed to? Where does the door in our text lead? What happens to those who go in through that door, and what happens to those who don't? And what's the reason why people don't go in? Well, God the Holy Spirit has the answers to those terribly important questions for us in our text this morning. As we get started in chapter 13, verses 18 through 21, the first section of our text this morning, you'll recall from last Sunday's sermon, That the last part of our text found us in a synagogue where Jesus had miraculously healed a woman who had been bent over, unable to fully straighten herself out for 18 years. Do you remember that? Jesus said that this woman had been bound by Satan for 18 years and Jesus loosed her from her bond. Jesus undid Satan's work. That's important to note for our sermon today. It's important for you to know that much of what Jesus did in his first coming is explicitly connected to overturning Satan's diabolical work in the world. Do you remember back in Luke chapter 10 when Jesus said to the 72 whom he had sent out, who came back rejoicing that even the demons were subject to them in Jesus' name? Do you remember Jesus said to them in Luke 10, 15, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Jesus' ministry during his first coming to earth was the beginning of the undoing of the curse placed on all creation because Adam and Eve succumbed to Satan's temptation of them in the Garden of Eden. That's what made Jesus' opponents, what, what they said in chapter 11, so heinous. Do you remember when they said that Jesus cast out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons? What a stupid thing to say. Jesus's miraculous work wasn't empowered by Satan, it was empowered by God the Holy Spirit to overthrow Satan and to lay waste to Satan's kingdom. And so as we get started this morning, I want you to apprehend this important Satan-conquering aspect of Jesus's ministry so that you can understand what's going on in this portion of the Gospel of Luke. Luke. Jesus came to lay waste to Satan's rule and all the wicked effects of it, sin and sickness and death. Jesus came to bind the strong man and to enter his house and to plunder his goods, namely the souls for those whom Jesus died and for whom he was raised. He came to crush the serpent's head. He came to demolish Satan's kingdom and to begin the work that will gloriously culminate in the scene in Revelation 11 when the loud voices in heaven say, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Luke helps us to see that this serpent-crushing, curse-reversing facet of Christ's ministry is here when he tells us that Jesus' healing of the woman in the synagogue on the Sabbath is a loosing of Satan's binding of that woman. Now, why am I laying all that track? It's because that helps us to understand the context of the two parables that Jesus gives us here in Luke 13, 18 and 19, and in chapter 20, uh, verses 20 and 21. Because you may be thinking, why did Luke start talking about the kingdom all of a sudden? And it turns out it's not all of a sudden. It flows naturally from seeing Christ's conquering work over Satan's kingdom with the healing of the bent over woman. Jesus' kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, has broken in, and the days of Satan's kingdom are numbered. Well, with that background, what does Jesus say about his kingdom in verses 18 through 21? Well, he says that his kingdom is going to start small, almost imperceptibly, but that it will steadily advance with an inevitability until it takes over entirely. The first parable that the Lord gives us to teach us about the kingdom's advance is a parable about a mustard seed that grows into a tree so large that birds can make their nest in it. Now, don't think back to your botany electives in college. What genus of the mustard seed is it that becomes a tree? The Lord isn't interested in giving horticulture lessons here. He's simply saying that something small becomes something enormous. The way we might illustrate the same kind of thing by talking about something that goes from being a celery seed into a sequoia. The kingdom of heaven, from the perspective of the Jews in Jesus' day, started off pretty unimpressively. This kingdom didn't kick out the occupying Romans. Romans. The Jews stumbled over the fact that the one who called himself the king of the kingdom suffered the execution of a criminal on a cross for crying out loud. But the kingdom nevertheless was surely established in Jesus' day, and its inexorable advance has moved ever onward and ever outward up to the present day. Like an enormous tree that grows big enough and strong enough to allow birds to build nests in its branches, the kingdom of God, Jesus is saying, is going to grow and grow ever larger and ever stronger until the Lord Jesus returns and his kingdom will occupy all of creation and all of the opponents of the kingdom. All who are not subjects of the king will be eternally vanquished. Satan and his minions and every person who followed Satan by virtue of not having been a follower of Christ. Jesus illustrates the kingdom's advance with leaven in verses 20 and 21. The Lord says that his kingdom is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures. That's about 50 pounds of flour. You ever seen a little packet of yeast? It's the tiniest little granules, isn't it? It would only take a cup of yeast to leaven 50 pounds of flour. Here again, the Lord gives us the picture of something small, practically imperceptible, certainly unimpressive to the unknowing eye. Something small that becomes enormous, that eventually entirely takes over. A cup of leaven, and eventually the whole of the 50 pounds of flour is leavened. The kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ is going to permeate Satan's kingdom until there isn't even a microcosm of Satan's kingdom left. The kingdom of the Lord is going to permeate until the full knowledge of the Lord covers the earth like the waters cover the sea. That's what's going on, dear ones. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ dealt its first blow to Satan's kingdom during Christ's earthly ministry, as we see in miracles like the healing of the woman bound by Satan, and most clearly, of course, in the cross and the resurrection. And that kingdom that was established at Christ's first coming, the Savior is saying to us here, it's going to grow and grow and grow and permeate and permeate and permeate until it encompasses all of the new heavens and new earth and no shred of Satan's kingdom remains. It follows then, doesn't it? Verses 22 through 30, that a person ought to want to make sure that he's in that inevitably advancing kingdom and not shut out of it. That's what Jesus pivots to in his teaching, beginning at verse 22. Verse 22 says he went on his way through towns and villages teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. You ought to see another cross-shaped shadow over that phrase in verse 22 because his journey to Jerusalem is his journey to the cross. And he's going through towns and villages and he's teaching. And as he's doing that, someone comes up to him and asks him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? That strikes me as an entirely reasonable question on the heels of Jesus' teaching that we've been seeing about the urgent need for repentance lest a person be cut down with God's judgment. Jesus doesn't give a straightforward answer to the person's question. Maybe it's a question you have too. Here's John's vision in Revelation chapter 7, quote, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. A great multitude that no one could number, John says he saw. But whatever the answer to the person's question in verse 23, Jesus' word is clear. Strive to enter by the narrow door. Strive to enter, that is, to enter into the kingdom, into Christ's kingdom by the narrow door. There is a door into the kingdom of heaven. When you're talking doors, you're talking something that can be open, and you're talking something that can be closed. And it's a narrow door, doesn't Jesus say? That communicates exclusivity. There's only one door into the kingdom. And that door is the one who revealed himself as the door in the Gospel of John. Jesus says in John chapter 10, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. It may be true that all roads lead to Rome, but not all roads lead to heaven. As Peter and John preached in Acts chapter 4, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus made it unmistakably clear in John chapter 14 and verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. The door into the kingdom, Jesus says in verse 24 here, is but one narrow door. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says to his hearers, strive to enter through the narrow door. Now why would Jesus say, that we're to strive to enter through the narrow door? The word strive here is related to the words that Paul uses when he says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, fight the good fight of faith. Strive to enter through the narrow door. Fight to enter through the narrow door. One translation has, exert every effort to enter through the narrow door. I think that's a good translation. And why would Jesus say something like that? Has Jesus not read good doctrinal books and theological books? Doesn't Jesus know that people are saved by grace through faith, not as a result of work so that no one could boast? Of course Jesus knows that. It's his gospel after all. So what's he saying? He's saying that entering into his kingdom... Through himself who is the narrow door looks a lot like striving and fighting. The Lord's going to say in the very next chapter of Luke's gospel, Luke 14, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot Be my disciple. Back in Luke chapter 9, Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And that's all striving language, isn't it? Forsaking yourself, denying yourself, taking up your cross. Listen, you must be clear, your salvation is entirely God's doing. From beginning to end. From beginning to end. He doesn't just get you through the door and then wind you up and send you on your way to fend for yourself. No. He who began a good work will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. But dear ones, don't let a misunderstanding of those truths cause you to fall into some kind of passivity in regard to your soul either in seeking Christ so as to be saved or in your continuing to pursue Christ after he saved you. God saving you is entirely by his own doing and it's going to look a lot like striving and fighting for the sake of your soul. And well, it should when you consider how high are the stakes here, as we'll talk about in just a minute. And how does Jesus... Ground this command in verse 24 to strive to enter through the narrow door. Strive to enter through the narrow door for many, I tell you, many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. He's going to explain why they won't be able to get in in the following verses. Let's pick it up at verse 25 and follow along as I read. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. Many will not come in Jesus illustrates in the verses I just read to you because they will not enter while the door is open to them. Jesus, who is himself the door, is standing before the Jews in this portion of Luke's gospel. Recall what he's been doing. He's been healing and casting out demons and teaching and doing all the things that their reading of the Old Testament ought to be saying to them, look, there's Messiah, there's God's Son but in their sinful rebellion, they refuse him. They will not come into the kingdom through him. Instead, they say his miracles are the work of Satan. They rebuke him for healing on the Sabbath. And they, like they did with the other prophets who were sent to them from God, they'll kill him. And Jesus warns them that once the master of the house has arisen and shut the door, there will be those who begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, and the master will answer them, I do not know where you come from. And so they'll jog his memory. They'll try and remind the master, oh, actually you do know us. Verse 26, sure you know us. We ate and drank with you. You taught in our streets. And the master will once again reply to those who are knocking on the narrow door, the narrow door that's been shut by the master of the house. He'll say to them, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In June of 2015, Sarah and I went to the White House for a tour. We passed on the first floor, the state floor as it's called, we passed by the staircase from which the president and the first lady come down for formal occasions. That staircase, which you can walk right past, leads to the second floor of the White House where the first family has their bedrooms and their private dining room. What do you think would have happened if I had started up those stairs (laughs) and before the Secret Service tased me into oblivion, I said, no, it's okay. I know the president. My claiming to know him on that day would have made no difference. No matter how strenuously I objected. It will make no difference at the last day whether a person says, I know the master. I ate with him and drank with him. I heard him teach in our streets. I know that I know him. The only thing that will make a difference is if the master of the house the one who alone opens and shuts the narrow door into his kingdom. It will only matter if the master says, I know you. And if the master says, I do not know where you come from, well, look with me at verses 28 and 29. In that place, there will be weeping And gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out, and people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. In that place, verse 28 says, which place? the place that's not inside the narrow door by which you enter into the kingdom. That is, every place outside the kingdom. In that place, Jesus says, there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you, the Lord says to the Jews to whom he's speaking, when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. What a reversal. These Jews prided themselves on being descendants of Abraham. Do you remember what Jesus' Jewish adversary said in John chapter 8? We're the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. In John chapter 8 and verse 39, they say to Jesus, Abraham is our father. Turns out Abraham isn't their father. Jesus says to them, You're of your father, the devil. Paul writes to the Romans, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. No, those who can truly sing Father Abraham are those who, like Abraham, have faith in the son of Abraham, the Lord Jesus Christ. And these Jews don't have faith in Abraham's greater son. In fact, they've rejected him right to his face. They've said that his works come from hell. And so at the last day, They're going to see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom, and they're going to see the prophets in the kingdom, the prophets their fathers killed, Jesus said to them in chapter 11. And even though they will have lived their whole lives believing that they're going to go when they die, wherever Abraham went when he died, they're going to be shut out of the kingdom of God, shut out to a place of measureless remorse and regret and aching for another chance to come in. It's a place of weeping. Shut out to a place of measureless torment, gnashing of teeth. And lo and behold, look at verses 29 and 30. Who is it that's going to inhabit the kingdom alongside Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the prophets? Lo and behold, who is it who's going to feast at the table of the kingdom of God? Not Jesus' Jewish enemies, but Gentiles, non-Jews. You see that in verse 29? Those who will come into the kingdom by the narrow door are those from east and west and from north and south, from all over the globe, to banquet at God's table in fulfillment of the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above all the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many peoples shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. Because the Jews have rejected the Messiah sent to them, because they've not been willing to enter into the kingdom that they think they've been waiting for and longing for and praying for, because they're not willing to enter through the narrow door who is Christ, they're going to be shut out of the kingdom. And the Lord's going to direct his saving attention to the nations, to the Gentiles. We see this play out in Luke-Acts, don't we? We've been saying all along those two books ought to be considered together as one complete work. In Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas are at Antioch in the region of Pisidia, And the Bible says that when the Jews saw the crowds that were hearing and believing the gospel that Paul and Barnabas were preaching, these Jews were filled with jealousy and they began to contradict what Paul was saying and they began reviling him. And here's what Luke records. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. In Acts chapter 18, Paul's preaching in Corinth. And he had Jewish opponents there who reviled him for the gospel of Christ that Paul was preaching. And Paul said to them, your blood be on your heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. That's what's meant by verse 30 here. Those whom the Jews regarded as last, Gentiles, tax collectors, Sinners, the poor, those with physical disabilities, isn't that who we see responding to Jesus with saving faith in Luke's gospel? And those who would have fancied themselves first, Pharisees, lawyers, they're going to be last. They're going to be brought low. They're going to be humbled at their eternal condemnation at the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you have your outline handy, you'll see that I called 13, 22 to 29, warning of judgment then. That's because in those verses, I think Jesus is talking about the eternal judgment that he'll impose at his second coming onto these Jews who haven't received him. But in verses 31 to 35, I'm saying pronouncement of judgment now. I think a more immediate judgment is in view. We see here in verse 31 that at the very same time when Jesus is giving the teaching we've just heard, some Pharisees come and warn Jesus that Herod wants to kill him. Now, are these Pharisees who had faith in Jesus? Maybe. Nicodemus was a Pharisee who eventually became a follower of Christ. But the Pharisees were also politically against Herod. So this may be an enemy of my enemy is my friend scenario. This isn't the same Herod that wanted to kill Jesus when the Lord was a baby. Matthew records that for us. But turns out that rotten apple didn't fall far from the tree. This Herod here, Herod Antipas, who succeeded his father, Herod the Great, in Israel, he wants to kill Jesus too. We don't know why. Certainly, Jesus had drama follow him everywhere he went, and history records Herod Antipas being a man who liked peace wherever he ruled. But Jesus doesn't let this warning that the Pharisees give him deter him at all. He says in response to these threats, go and tell that fox, go and tell that conniver that I'm casting out demons and I'm performing cures today and tomorrow and the third day I finish my course. What's Jesus saying? He's saying that the journey that he began in chapter 9 and verse 51 when Luke says that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem, Jesus says, Whatever Herod's threats, my journey is going to continue unimpeded. Jesus is heading for Jerusalem. He's heading for the cross. He's heading for the empty tomb. He's heading for his death and resurrection. He's heading for the salvation of his people. And as he goes to Jerusalem to establish the kingdom of God, he says, I'm going to keep on destroying the enemy's kingdom. I'm going to keep on casting out demons. I'm going to keep on healing those who are sick. He's going to keep on doing just exactly what the Father sent him to earth from heaven to do. He's going to save his people from their sins until he finishes his course. When he emerges victorious over sin and death and hell, when he's raised from the dead on the third day. That's the resurrection that's in view with this reference of the third day in verse 32. But it's all got to happen in Jerusalem, doesn't it? Jesus says in verse 33, if they're going to kill me, the greatest prophet of God, they ought to kill me in Jerusalem where they've killed the other prophets. And so, Jesus is going to keep walking to Jerusalem, undeterred by Herod. And he says in verse 33, that's what he must do. Understand that as a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies concerning Christ. And in verses 34 and 35, Jesus stops to consider those who live in the city of God, Jerusalem, and what they do to those whom God sends to them with his word. Jesus says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. That's a weighty lament for a Hebrew speaking person. Throughout the centuries, this city where the kings of Israel ruled over the people of Israel, the people of God, where the temple rested, the city that ought to have been the holiest of cities was the bloodiest of cities, at least for those who came to them with a word from the Lord. Those in Jerusalem, Jesus says, from those on the throne on down, they killed the prophets whom God sent to them, and they stoned those sent to them from God. And Jesus would rather have... Gathered the inhabitants of the city of David to himself. He would rather have gathered them lovingly and tenderly as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, as the Lord gathers his people under his everlasting arms. How often, Jesus says, would he have gathered the inhabitants of Jerusalem to himself? How often? Every time a prophet called on them to repent and return to God, Jesus is saying to them in Jerusalem, Come into my arms, Jerusalem. But the people who dwelt there were not willing. They rejected God as their king when they wanted a king like the other nations had. And they rejected God with their idolatry, with their whoring after the gods of other nations. They rejected God with their injustice and greed and wickedness toward each other and toward the poor among them. They rejected God by killing those he sent to them, the prophets. And they're going to keep doing it. The one who's lamenting over Jerusalem for their bloody cruelty to God's prophets is the next prophet on Jerusalem's chopping block. In short order, he's going to arrive in Jerusalem on a Sunday. He's going to be arrested on a Thursday night. He's going to endure a kangaroo court overnight on Friday. And by Friday sundown, he'll be dead and buried in a borrowed tomb. And he came to keep the law these Jews couldn't keep, he kept it perfectly for their salvation. He came to be the Passover lamb that they annually sacrificed. He came to eternally cause the plague of death to pass them over by his blood applied to their sins. He came to be both their king and the suffering servant in their place on the cross for their salvation to overthrow their last enemy if only they had received him. If only they had believed on him if only they had not rejected him, if only they had been willing, they would have found that his death on the cross was in their place. But his suffering on the cross was his taking the Father's wrath for them. If only they had been willing, they would have found that he had forgiven their sins and cleansed them and brought them into his kingdom to eternally feast and rest with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the prophets and with Christ himself. But they were not willing. And so, like the prophets of old said to godless, wicked Israel, Jesus pronounces their condemnation. behold, Your house is forsaken, verse 35. The Lord's referring to Jerusalem, including the temple, when he says, Behold, your house is forsaken. No true worship of the Lord happened there anymore. The Lord said to Israel through the prophet Jeremiah about the first temple, I have forsaken my house, I have abandoned my heritage, I have given the beloved of my soul into the hands of her enemies, And now the greater prophet, Jesus Christ, says about Jerusalem and the second temple, behold, your house is forsaken. I've forsaken your house. I've left you without my presence. And not only had God forsaken the temple and condemned the empty religious practices that went on there and in Jerusalem, Jesus' words here would come to full flower Just a few years after this, in A.D. 70, when the Roman Empire besieged Jerusalem and eventually destroyed the entire city and the temple, not leaving one stone on top of another even to this very day. Now what does Jesus mean with the last words in our passage, the end of verse 35, when he says, And I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, he's not saying, you're not going to see me again until my triumphal entry on Palm Sunday. That's easily enough confused because that is an event where some people are found saying that in Matthew's gospel and Mark's gospel and people say something similar in Luke's gospel on Palm Sunday. But the reason I think you can conclude that Jesus doesn't have Palm Sunday in view here is because when Jesus makes this statement in Matthew, it's in Matthew 23 after his triumphal entry into Jerusalem has already taken place. And whatever Jesus means in Matthew, he means in Luke, and vice versa. The two Gospels aren't going to contradict each other. And what's more, Jesus says this cry is going to be uttered after Jerusalem is destroyed. I think that's, again, a reference to AD 70. So what is Jesus referring to when he says, I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I think he's he's referring to his return. The return for which we're still waiting. The return for which we prayed earlier today in the Lord's Prayer. Now on that day when Jesus returns, will the Jews say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, because the Lord will have worked redemptively among ethnic Jews and saved a great many of them before Christ's return? That's a possible interpretation. I certainly believe the Lord is going to direct his redemptive attention in a major way to ethnic Israel before Christ's return. That's how I read Romans 11, 25, and 26. I lean, based on the judgment and condemnation context in this section of Luke's gospel, though, in interpreting this phrase, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, as something the Jews are going to say at Christ's return, not as a confession of saving faith, though, but as an acknowledgment of what is undeniably true. They will confess this, albeit as those who are shut out of the kingdom because of their unwillingness to believe. They will confess the blessedness of Christ, the fulfillment of Psalm 118, verse 26. They will confess the blessedness of Christ of the one who comes in the name of the Lord. But as one shut out of the kingdom because of their unwillingness. Now let's spend some time applying this text to our lives. And to my unbelieving friends, I'm kind of wondering what more must I say to you? Yes, it's the unbelieving Jews who are squarely in view on the warnings in our text today. But unbelief is unbelief is unbelief. And you who are outside of Christ, whether you're a child or a junior high youth group member or a senior high youth group member or a college student or a worker, there's no matter your age. If you do not believe on Christ, you will beat on the narrow door to the kingdom of God at the last day in vain. You will cry out, Lord, open to us. And he will say to you, I do not know where you come from. And it will do you no good on that day, loved one, to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. Or maybe you'll say, I went where your word was preached every week. You taught in our sanctuary through your servants. Nevertheless, he'll say to you, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. And if I'm right about what I and the other preachers here have been preaching to you, can you imagine your horror when you die and then you realize too late that the door to the kingdom has been shut to you? How bitter will your tears be You'll gnash your teeth until your teeth are gone as you recall that Sunday after Sunday, Christ, through these preachers, held open the door to you and said, come in, come into the kingdom, receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life, receive the certain hope of eternal feasting and resting at table in the kingdom of God, and you wouldn't do it. Imagine the horror you'll experience the first second you realize you're too late. And I'm saying to you, if you've never listened to me before, listen now. I'm saying to you, you don't have to experience that, dear ones. Hallelujah! Today is the day of salvation. It's still the year of the Lord's favor. He's laying waste to Satan's kingdom. Satan, whose slave you are if you're outside of Christ. The Lord is ransacking Satan's house. He's plundering Satan's house. And he's taking as his spoils of war the souls of all who would but repent and believe the gospel. And so sinner, I ask you, will you strive to enter through the narrow door? Will you finally stop being unwilling? And will you come to Christ He'll receive you. He will receive you. The door remains open. But one day it will close. When will that be? You don't know. Do you recall our sister Paulette standing up and sharing just last Sunday? Today, she's gone. So, come today, you who are outside of Christ, would you ask God to be merciful to you and to forgive you and to give you the grace to turn from your sin and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ today? And, you who profess faith in Christ, how should you respond? Well, first, I, I want to offer a warning. Jesus says to us, it will not be enough on that day to say that you know the Lord. What will make an eternity's worth of difference will be whether he says that he knows you. And these Jews thought that their biological lineage to Abraham, their being the ones to whom the Lord gave the law and sent the prophets, they thought that all that benefited them, and none of it benefited them apart from faith, at least eternally and salvifically. And so I ask you, you who profess faith in Christ, have you believed on Christ? Are you trusting him and him alone for your salvation? Or is there any part of you that's trusting your own good deeds? Is there any part of you that's trusting your parents or your grandparents' faith? Surely God wouldn't send my parents' kid to hell, would he? Are you trusting church attendance or Bible knowledge, or even mental assent to the facts of the gospel? Are you trusting warm feelings about Jesus and the Bible and the gospel? Don't trust in any of those things for salvation. Trust Christ and his death and resurrection for sinners. Only those who have believed on Christ will find that they've entered into the kingdom through Christ. And all others, even those who thought they were in the kingdom, will eternally find themselves shut out. So to you who profess faith in Christ, I offer a sober and a loving warning to examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Are you trusting in Christ and Christ alone for your salvation? Or are you trusting in Christ plus something else? Even a seemingly good something else? No. No, trust Christ alone. Don't be deceived at the last day and find yourself outside the kingdom forever. And be clear, loved ones. Entering into the kingdom through the narrow door involves striving. Striving all the way to the end. And it ought to involve striving because nothing is of more eternal importance than whether you've come into the kingdom. Second, brother and sister in Christ, if the Lord has saved you, rejoice that you've been delivered out of Satan's kingdom. We're all born in Adam. We're all born into Satan's kingdom, following the prince of the power of the air, Paul says to the Ephesians, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. But when the Lord saves us, Paul says to the Colossians, he delivers us out of the domain of darkness and transfers us into the kingdom of his beloved son. Praise the Lord. Amen. And his son's kingdom is a kingdom of peace. It's a kingdom of righteousness. It's a conquering kingdom. We sing, his kingdom cannot fail. He rules o'er earth and heaven. His kingdom is advancing right now. As we speak. The enormous tree that began as a mustard seed is continuing to put out branches and to grow deeper and taller. And the little bit of leaven, it continues even now to permeate. And it's going to continue until the whole universe is uncontestedly under Christ's rule and reign, until all of his enemies have been made a footstool for his feet. And that's cause to rejoice, saints, because by God's grace, you've entered the conquering kingdom. So let that give you rest and calm. Apply the truth of God's inevitable kingdom to your anxiety and to your fears. And lastly, saints, get on board with God's kingdom advancing agenda by looking to make disciples use these invitations that are in your bulletins to our christmas services let me tell you how effective an evangelist i am i talked to somebody this week invited this person to church and not for the first time and i said to this person do you mind if i keep inviting you to church and this person said as long as you don't mind if i keep saying no <laughs> and i said that's a deal Look for ways to engage with lost people. Decide you're going to make friends with your coworkers. Decide you've got all this free time you don't know what to do with. You're going to coach a team. You're going to take your kids to a park. Listen, you don't have to be an expert in apologetics. You don't have to be able to respond to every question someone has about the Bible just take one of the little cards that we have and just invite them to church or invite them to an outreach event like our men's darts and chili. Darts and chili. That's, that's right there on the table for you. All of that, that's a faithful way to be on mission with the God who is seeing his son's kingdom move ever forward. The kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ is on the move. And the kingdom won't stop until he's put all his enemies under his feet. Strive to enter while the kingdom door is open. Let's pray. Father, once again, we have sobering words before us from your son. Give us faith to believe him. Give us faith to enter into the kingdom through the narrow door who is Christ. And thank you for making a way by your son, for making a way for sinners to come in and to feast and rest in your kingdom eternally. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.